Just before you listen to this episode of Hollywood Sources, let me tell you that you can come and join us live for a special recording on the 21st of March as we mark 25 years of devolution. Already confirmed, Alex Salmond, Jack McConnell, Henry McLeish, all former First Ministers of Scotland, of course. You can hear them in conversation, ask them your questions, make your points as well. Come along and see us. Get your tickets at hollywoodsources.com forward slash live. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hollywood Sources is proud to be brought to you by the Scotch Whiskey Association's Made to Be Measured campaign. Did you know that the recommended weekly limit of 14 units of alcohol equates to five pints of beer at average strength, or one and a half bottles of wine, or 14 single measures of spirits? If you didn't know that, well, you're not alone, actually. The majority of people who choose to drink alcohol do not know how many units are contained in the most common drinks. Informed consumers, though, make more responsible choices – And so the Made to be Measured campaign is supporting people across Scotland to understand more about the units in their glass. Made in Scotland and enjoyed around the world, Scotch whisky should always be enjoyed responsibly. Find out more by visiting scotch-whisky.org.uk forward slash made to be measured. Scottish Government calls on all sides to agree to an immediate ceasefire, to allow the humanitarian corridor to open and for supplies to get into Gaza, as well as allowing those who want to leave safe passage out. Hello and welcome to Hollywood Sources. I'm Callum MacDonald. We are recording on Wednesday the 25th of October and welcome to the podcast. At this point, let's say hello to Jeff Aberdeen, who was Alex Salmon's Chief of Staff. Hello, Jeff. Hello, And also Andy McKeever, who was Director of Communications for the Scottish Conservatives. Hello, Andy. Hello. And I think, actually, I think I'm right in saying for the first time on this podcast, we need to do a quick happy birthday to to somebody, to Andy McKeever, in fact. Happy birthday for yesterday, Andy. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I mean, viewers will not believe this, but 44... (laughs) 44, well, I is think, it? I think Gosh. you viewers will be quite Which, quite underwhelmed by that. And you know, <laughs> I went I went into politics for the first time at 22. So I have really? now been in politics for longer than I have not been in politics. Wow. It's time to get, to out, get a I real think, job. 
Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Stop messing around, Andy. Goodness sake. Got a family to look exactly. after. Exactly. Uh, right. Well, happy birthday to you. Um, I was just going to just going to start with a bit of podcast admin, actually, some new admin before we welcome our guest and before we get chatting about uh, the politics of the moment. Just to say that we are we are working on some really exciting podcast episodes for you listening to this to actually be a part of. Of course, you're already brilliant. You're listening. You're emailing with your questions and with your agreements and disagreements with Jeff and Andy and guests and all of that. But we've we've got a mail an email mailing list open for you to sign up to. And this is not to spam you. Promise we will not spam you. This is to keep in touch on the various things that we've got planned over the next few months, which I'm certain will be of interest to you. So to get your name on the email mailing list, go to the website, hollywoodsources.com. And then there's a page there. It's called Get Our Emails. Go in there, put your email address in. And then for various boring bureaucratic reasons, you have to check your inbox and just confirm you've signed up through the link that you get sent. And that is it. We will keep in touch. So go to hollywoodsources.com, click on Get Our Emails and get stuck in. Uh, Because honestly, there's lots of things coming up and you just don't want to miss them. Thank you very much. Good. Right, that's the admin out of the way. So we can move on to actual politics now, shall we? Um, Shall we start with council tax? Which I know we talked a lot about last week on the pod uh, because it was just newly, freshly announced by Hamza Youssef as of SNP conference. In the week since, there's been a lot of dispute. There's been a lot of fallout about the way this has been done, whether it's a good idea, whether it's a new strategy, whether it makes sense. Um, And in fact, some polling today in the Times is quite interesting that a majority of Scots support charging second homes more in council tax. This is part of the council, um, excuse me, part of the government consultation on council tax. So, Andy, there's a lot of council tax stuff in the air. Where have we reached just over a week since Hamza Yusuf announced this? Does it feel like this policy is going to work, that it's going to get off the ground, that it has anywhere near the support it requires in order for it to come into fruition? Um, I think there's two sides to the council tax story, to be honest. I think uh, on the one hand, there's the fact that uh, it's become very clear over the last six months, especially, but uh, further back than that as well, that the SNP, particularly since they became uh, allied with the Greens, have been losing the centre ground. Um, We've seen that in poll after poll, uh, and we have seen people feeling like they do not get good return for the increased taxes that they pay in Scotland compared to the rest of the UK. And it is no accident, therefore, that we also began to see Anna Sarwar very clearly parking his tank on that particular lawn because he knows where elections are won from. And uh, Anas came out against the council tax rise and critically also against the rise in income tax. So we have this situation where the SNP strategists realised they were losing the centre ground. So from that point of view, from the cost of living uh, tax perspective, um, freezing council tax is something that a lot of people in this country would have woken up to and said, thank goodness for that. Um, so that's one side of it. And I think that's a net positive side. You know, that's, that's, you know that will not do uh, the SNP any harm with your ordinary centrist voter. The other side of it, though, is the relationship between local and central government. Um, and uh, devolution uh, in this country was treated very much as an exercise of devolving power from Westminster to Holyrood. And then it stopped. Um, and actually, 
the Scottish government, and this goes back in fairness to the Scottish executive under Labour and the Lib Dems as well, has been a very centralist government. There is very limited devolution to local authorities, um, both in terms of uh, legislative, but also particularly there has been a tiny, tiny financial devolution to local government, and it means that local government get almost all its money, gets almost all its money from uh, effectively a block grant from central government. So this will do no favours to that. It was a criticism at the time of the old SNP ta- council tax freeze, but I think this time this freeze has definitely created more of a debate uh, and more anger at that local government level because they feel they have been constricted in terms of how much they can raise. So I think that's uh, hopefully a reasonable outline of, I think, the two sides to uh, this decision to freeze council tax. And so, Jeff, is this an SNP and Hamza Yusuf win? Well, um, I'm going to be a lot quicker in my response than Andy, because I take the same <laughs> amount of time as him. We'll have no time <laughs> today. Nobody <laughs> believes you. People listen to this podcast. No. Nobody <laughs> believes that I speak more than you. <laughs> I, 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 I'll answer your question directly uh, first, uh, Callum, ignoring my erstwhile colleague. Um, I, I saw a very interesting tweet from Connor Matchett last night, the journalist, who said, every single SNP source I've spoken to in the last week has been absolutely delighted with the coverage since conference all voters here is council tax freeze. The rest is all processed around COSLA, a body the majority know nothing about and don't know or care who they are. And I think there is a, a, a great degree of truth in that, in all honesty. And so from that uh, respect, I think it probably has been a win. Now, I'm not going to talk about the virtue of the policy or not. I'm sure we'll come into that discussion shortly with our guest. But um, I just want to talk a little bit about the handling. And mm. uh, I said on the podcast after the speech last week, that if you're going to make these types of policy interventions, particularly when it's going against something that you have committed to within the Verity House Agreement, that's the agreement with local authorities, then you've got to campaign for it. And I thought there was a bit of a trip up from the SNP in the immediate aftermath where you saw uh, some of the most obvious questions. How much is it going to cost? Has you know your cabinet colleagues been made aware? Um, and, uh, you know, have you spoken to COSLA? And they seem to be on the back foot from that. Now, this might seem all small beer, and perhaps it is in the uh, fullness of time. But I think the importance of having consistency of message uh, when you take a policy decision like that. And, and furthermore, I thought that uh, there was a reporting. I talk about Paul Hutchinson a lot here. He think, you're going to think I'm his kind of promoter here. But he also had a story recently that said that the, that the First Minister revealed some regret with local authorities. Well, Let's go back to that conviction word again. If you're going to go after something, you go after it and you don't apologise for it. And you explain to the council the reasoning and the rationale for your decision. So maybe the, again, small beer, but just in terms of the handling, the political handling, maybe you need to be a bit more sure-footed going forward as they enter what is a general election year, which is upon us. And this stuff will be scrutinised much closer going forward. Mm. And I want to add in, actually, just in the aftermath, you may have seen on the Hollywood Sources Twitter feed uh, this week, or indeed in The Spectator or in The Herald or wherever else picked it up as well, that in our special episode with Hamza Youssef, our our programme back in August, uh, he was speaking about why Kate Forbes wasn't in Cabinet. And he said that there was um, differences over progressive taxation, differences around progressive taxation. And so uh, this week, there has been more reporting uh, around, well, I suppose his plans for taxation in general, whether that is income tax, um, and it sort of builds on the council tax story as well. Um, Jeff, just put this into context for us, because 
for a for a day or two there, it looked like the door might be really pushed quite wide open for Kate Forbes rejoining government. No, I didn't actually think so. I didn't think that was likely, if I'm being honest with you. Um, But you see, you see what I mean. uh, That the the policy, the policy, the, the sort of policy difference was was narrowing. Yeah, I, I think the, the, the rationale given uh, by the First Minister for not uh, having Kate Forbes in, the, in, in government seems to have dissipated somewhat with the announcement of the council tax freeze. But I think the reality is, um, uh, I think they're going to see how this goes um, post-conference, see if they see a bit of an uptick in, in their support, at least a consolidation of their support, and then test the waters. I, I don't expect we're going to see any reshuffles uh, this side of the new year, certainly, and it won't, we won't see anything like that, I think, until spring next year at the earliest. Uh, you can have a little look on Twitter. Just, Go, just on, resources. Go on, Andy. Yeah, just uh, one thing. I, I agree with Jeff, right? I don't think we're, we're, you know, we're, it's not going to be like uh, early Christmas present for Kate Forbes as a return to cabinet. That's not going to happen in that sort of time scale. But I'm um, not sure she would view it as a Christmas present. <laughs> no, well, that's, I don't know who's a Christmas present. No, that's true. I don't know, I'm not sure who. I, I wasn't clean in my head there who the recipient of the present was. But um, we, can, we can debate that later. Um, I do, though, think that there is... God, I hate, I'm about to say a word that I hate. I think there's a journey going on here. Um, and uh, I, I apologise to all listeners for the use of that word. I'm going to kick myself later. Um, we, we, let's just think about the last six months. Um, and if you think about the SNP-Green relationship, uh, gender recognition, deposit return scheme, highly protected marine areas, council tax income tax, look out for something on gas boilers, mm. uh, a, a move on oil and gas, the A9, there's quite a lot here that has been slowly creating the impression of, uh, uh, I suppose, a drift towards the more powerful partner in the coalition. Um, if I can put it this way, the green tail that's been wagging the yellow dog might be getting docked at the moment um, and I, I just think it's worth keeping an eye on not necessarily in terms of individual announcements but if you look in the round there is quite a raft of mm. quite important green policy platforms that are being adjusted or tempered look out for private rented sector as well by the way um, adjusted or tempered or completely scrapped and I think it's something to keep looking out for um, over the next year in particular, because what happened in Rutherglen is that um, they got smacked in the face with reality. It's what happened. I mean, we've seen it in polls for a while, but they actually got hit in the face with the reality of voters at the polling booth. And I wouldn't underestimate the power of that. And if I just may come on very quickly, because I think, and I don't want to do your job, Callum, but we do need to bring in our guest because let's be <laughs> yes, clear, we do. The, 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 the protagonist, the catalyst, rather, for these kind of changes in policy has been the re-emergence of the Labour vote. Let's, let's not kid ourselves. If, if the SNP ran out rampant winners in Rutherglen, we wouldn't see these changes. So I think, you know, it's, it's maybe time to hear from said <laughs> individuals so that we can pose these questions well. to us. Jeff's not the only one who noticed the smooth segue that we were building to from council tax to the Rutherglen and Hamilton West by-election and he has trodden all over it like a bull in a china shop. But in any case, let's... 
let's welcome, let's welcome Jackie Bailey, uh, who has served as Deputy Leader of the Scottish Labour Party since 2020 and has been a member of the Scottish Parliament for the Dumbarton constituency since 1999, when the Scottish Parliament reopened. Jackie Bailey, Dame Jackie Bailey, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Callum. And I, I love the introduction. Um, you, I, you, of course, neglected to say that I was very young when I started out in the Parliament, but, but we'll take it as read. Yeah, well, so was the Parliament, you know. That's the way it, that's the way it was. It's all good. Um, right. Jeff has absolutely, uh, you know, walked all over what I was about to say, which is the following. Um, the Rutherglen and Hamilton West by-election. Labour won with 58% of the vote. There was a lot of talk about the cost of living crisis. There was also a lot of attacking the Scottish government's decision to allow council tax rises next April. Um, there was talk around income tax as well. Has Hamza Youssef just disarmed what was a, a, a you know a successful election strategy for Scottish Labour? He, he's not disarmed it. He's reacted to it. And I think somebody said earlier, um, it talked about Christmas. My Christmas Day happened on the 5th of October with the <laughs> Rutherglen and Hamilton West by-election. Because if you'd said to me going into that by-election, which took a long time because of the recall petition, that we would register a 20.4% swing from the SNP to Labour, um, I probably wouldn't have believed you. But, but what was interesting at that by-election is the number of undecided voters who then, in, during the course of the campaign, came over to Labour. Let me deal with the, the issues we raised, because it, I think we would all agree that the council tax, which the SNP promised to scrap in 2007, is long past its sell-by date. You know, it doesn't work. Um, the last revaluation was 1991. So I was in the bizarre situation in my own constituency where I have people living in new council houses that were in band E. So they were going to be hit by the tinkering around the edges with the council tax to increase the, the, the take on those upper bandings in a way that was unthinkable. So we absolutely needed to oppose that in a cost of living crisis. The fact that the SNP have reacted by saying they'll do a freeze, we welcome a freeze. Anything that stops bills going up um, at a time where people are struggling is something that should be welcomed. But we only do so on the basis that the freeze is fully funded and there is no detail round about that at the moment. So if you talk to the Scottish government, they're modelling the freeze on 3%. You talk to councils and the average that they're talking about is 8%. Now, if the government doesn't fully fund that, you will see catastrophic cuts to services. And, you know, looking at the substance of this, we know that the council tax is not progressive taxation. Um, and this freeze will help the better off more than it does those who are worst off, some of who pay no council tax at all. Um, so to lose services that would disproportionately benefit those who are least well off, I think would be a, a terrible outcome for the freeze. So the government need to get behind what they've said and not just say we're having a freeze, but actually fully fund it as well so that services aren't cut as a result. I suppose the big question um, is, you know, the, the, uh, let's say in two and a half years' time, uh, Labour win the election, Jackie Bailey's Deputy First Minister. Um, a lot of governments have said they're going to 
scrap council tax and replace it with something else. It's very, very, very easy to put in a manifesto and it's very, very, very difficult to do. And the reason that you know that is that nobody's done it and nobody's actually really even thinking about doing it. So I suppose the fair question is, um, you know, there will be a policy, I get that, for the election. You will have a policy on local tax, fine. How long will it take to do it? And there must be a threshold somewhere at which point you say, this is just in the too hard box and we've got other stuff to do because that's what every other government has done in the last 20 years. Well, what was interesting is I was one of the members who participated in the Scottish government's um, working group that looked at taxation across the board and looked in particular at a replacement for council tax. You know, we were convinced at the time that the government would take this forward. But you're absolutely right. They just parked it and said, we're we're not doing this, much to the the then minister's horror. Um, But we used that information in Labour. We came forward with a replacement property tax with more bans um, that it seemed to get support from um, a goodly number of people who are expert in this area that would require a revaluation. And at the moment, there are more people that would gain from a revaluation than would lose from it. So I do think we need to bite the bullet. Whatever we do, there needs to be a sustainable form of local government taxation and we need to reset the relationship with local government. But to be honest with you, we can debate you know, council tax or its, its successor, but it only accounts for about 15% of local government funding. 85% comes from the government itself. And the Scottish government over the last, I think, 10 years has cut that by 1 billion. So you see councils struggling today to provide basic services for their local communities because of that history of cuts, which was compounded by the council tax freeze for nine years as well. I think um, really interesting um, response, Jackie. And I think, you know, if I were the SNP right now, I'd take a little bit of heart from the fact that the Labour Party and the Conservative Party have all essentially said, yeah, no, we agree and welcome the freeze, notwithstanding the comments you made about making sure it's fully funded, of course. Uh, And I think going back to Conor Matchett's tweet, I think that's probably what they would be pretty reassured by. But can I bring it to 20? 24 next year and the general election we had uh, Jack McConnell on and he was talking about um, the importance perhaps of devolving parts of immigration policy recognizing that Scotland has specific needs in that regard and we've talked on the podcast before about you know how are the SNP going to approach this election in which they, they face an uphill struggle and one of the ways may be to try and outflank Labour where Keir Starmer at the UK level has to say something that perhaps Scottish Labour uh, wouldn't necessarily agree with. And I suppose what I'm trying to tease out with, and you won't be telling us your manifesto, and I get that, but will, can we expect to see divergence in policy and policy initiatives ahead of the election from Scottish and UK Labour? There is already policy divergence and, you know, the the devolution settlement is as it is because we want that divergence to respond to people's concerns at a local level. But um, let me say to you, I think the difference in approach this time is there is a real prospect 
of a Labour UK government, the kind of progressive government I have wanted for a long time now, and the relationship that we have with it will be different to the relationship that we have with the current Conservative government. I mean, that that's, that's self-evident. Um, so things like, and I recall Jack in the past brought forward what, what I think was called a fresh talent initiative, yeah. where we looked at, you know, those people who had come to Scotland to study from out with Scotland, actually being able through a visa process to stay in the area for three, four, five, however many years. Um, and that was negotiated with the Labour government as something that we could do in Scotland. I expect lots of joint working on initiatives like that that reflect the needs of Scotland, of our local economy, um, of all of that, um, without necessarily having a constitutional debate about whether you devolve it or not. Um, Having that kind of partnership approach, I think, gets us to a better place much quicker. And to be honest, I think we need to get there really quick just now, given the real challenges we have um, in the labour market in Scotland and, you know, health in particular, for as an example. You know what I, I think is interesting, and we can speculate a little bit here. We don't have to uh, worry too much about getting ahead of ourselves, because we like getting ahead of ourselves in this podcast. Um, Politicians love speculating, Andy, so that's good. I know, they do. That's why they like to come on. And, and Jackie's <laughs> about to do it. I know she is. Um, uh, I, when... When long-term governments get replaced, the the party that replaces them usually gets a decent kick at the ball, right? It's usually not a one-term thing. They usually get a pretty good kick at the ball. So you would expect that Keir Starmer, if he wins next year, has probably got a couple of terms at this. Um, similarly, you would expect that if things continue to go in that direction for Labour, um, and Anas Sarwar becomes First Minister in a couple of years, he'll probably get a pretty good kick at the ball as well. What I'm getting to is saying that they will be in a position where they can afford to take long-term choices and do things that will last for a long time. Now, and and that a lot of that will involve uh, the potential to change the relationship between central and local government quite substantially. So Jackie's talked there about changes to property tax, but actually, if you look around the world at other central local government relationships, not just property tax, actually local authorities in other countries will have lots of options for different taxes they might want to levy. They might have land value taxes, tourist taxes, which is a reasonable thing to talk about today, property taxes, income taxes, a whole range of taxes that they can levy, which makes them significant. So Jackie's talked about 85%. This makes them significantly more responsible for the money that they raise and disaggregates them from central government. Is that something which Labour would look at going far beyond just changing a property tax, but actually changing the relationship, the taxation relationship between local and central government completely? Um, It's something we've already looked at because we brought forward proposals for the tourist tax. We brought forward proposals to give local government um, more autonomy over the taxes that they've raised. But to be honest with you, it's not just the financing. It's what we do as partners with local government, because I'm very conscious, and this applies to other governments, I'm very conscious that, you know, we can all talk a good game, we can all provide wonderful policies um, and lots of strategies, but they never get implemented. They sit on a shelf gathering dust, or we pilot something and never mainstream it. Um, Local Mm. government is a key delivery agent. I would have thought for the Scottish government, um, and yet we don't treat them like that. We don't 
operate as a partnership with them about what the priorities are that we would want them to deliver on, never mind affording them the opportunity to develop local priorities and address them. So I remember, with a degree of amusement, um, John Swinney at the time when he was finance secretary saying, we're removing all ring fencing. And actually, if you look now, all of that ring fencing is back. I think they call it something different. So we need to get to a relationship with local government where we are talking more about outcomes, not inputs, where we are more relaxed about um, the funding settlement. But to be honest, we still tinker at the edges if all it is is 15% when the Scottish government provides 85% of the funding. Mm. Just on a, on, a, on a sort of final one on elections, Jackie, um, some opinion polls are suggesting that Labour has caught up with the SNP ahead of the general election. We've mentioned Rutherglen and Hamilton West. In your view, has the SNP reached a tipping point when it comes to electoral success or indeed, in their eyes, failure? I think if you look at the recent Savannah poll, and you would expect me to look at polls over time, but the recent Savannah poll put us absolutely on 35%, 35%, I think, for mm. the Westminster elections and for the Scottish Parliament elections, I think it was 40% and 40%. So um, a really interesting shift in the polls over time. Now, always in my head, I have thought that 35% was a tipping point. Um, and I do believe we've reached that now. We've absolutely reached that now. And it's not just Rutherglen and Hamilton West. This has been a trend over time. But I don't just rely on the polls. I love spending time on the doors in my constituency and indeed on others talking to people because you get a real sense of, let me use that word that Andy used, the journey that they're on, <laughs> because they are. They're changing their votes. There are people who, frankly, are sick of the Tories and understand that the best way to get rid of them is to vote Labour. Um, there are people who are formerly SNP voters and indeed SNP members who think that the quickest way to get in a progressive government that will focus on their priorities is actually to vote Labour. Um, so the, there are things that are changing across the country in people's voting intentions. That's mirrored in the polls. It's what I see on the doorsteps. I think we've reached that tipping point. And therefore, I'm not surprised that the SNP at their conference announced, I think I totaled it up at about a billion pounds of extra spending at the same time as in the months up to that, they were saying that, that actually there's no money and they're going to have to make cuts of approaching a billion pounds. They are panicking about what's going on. And it's the voters, frankly, that are passing judgment on them. If I may just one one quick final point on this part of the discussion. Um, when we had Annis uh, on the podcast, uh, Jackie, I, I was listening to him really closely and a lot of what he said chimed with me. I remember um, uh, what he was saying kind of uh, reflected my experience of what the SNP were doing in 2006 um, in, and, and before that even in the run-up to the election in terms of uh, comprehensive business engagement, uh, geographically spreading the message, trying to get to that centre ground or that aspirational voter ground that Andy's talked about in the podcast so far. And there was a piece a couple of weeks ago, again, by the famed Paul Hutchin that said essentially what Labour uh, were doing was playing the SMP playbook that they did uh, in 2006 uh, back at them. Would you accept that characterisation? 
Um, I'm not sure whether it's the SNP playbook we're playing back at them. I think this is the right thing to do. This is about recognising that, you know, Scotland is a small country, and I don't mean that in a bad way. It gives us opportunity, you know, to talk to business, to talk to those in the public sector, right the way across the board, to innovate, to try to do things differently, but actually to be aspirational for the country. This is not as good as it gets. We can do so much better, but we do that by working collectively across the country with the business community, with the voluntary sector, with public services, right the way across the board to make things better for people. And I think that's what they're recognising. Whether it's from somebody's playbook or not, I don't know. It's absolutely the right thing to do and Anas has nailed it. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hollywood Sources is proud to be brought to you by the Scotch Whiskey Association's Made to Be Measured campaign. To become Scotch whisky, distilled spirit is carefully crafted before maturing in Scotland for at least three years, although it's often decades. That's why Scotch whisky should always be sipped, savoured and enjoyed responsibly. The Chief Medical Officer recommends that adults who choose to drink alcohol consume no more than 14 units per week. But Scottish Government research shows that two-thirds of Scots are not aware of those guidelines. The Made to Be Measured campaign seeks to build greater awareness of the responsible consumption guidelines and the units of alcohol contained in popular drinks. Scotch whisky, it's made to be measured. Find out more at scotch-whisky.org.uk forward slash made to be measured. Let's go on. It's really interesting to have you on, Jackie. It's really interesting to see that kind of outward-facing election bit, uh, you know, following Rutherglen and Hamilton West. I think we have to turn to um, perhaps some internal difficulties in the Labour Party over the last couple of weeks since conflict broke out in the Middle East, uh, since Hamas attacked Israel and in the following, you know, back and forth that has claimed the lives of thousands of people. And I do just want to ask you about resignations from Labour Council branches. Glasgow Kelvin specifically, uh, nine members of the leadership of one of Scotland's largest local Labour branches in Glasgow Kelvin resigned. They say there's an attempt to stifle debate on the conflict in Israel and the Gaza Strip. And I'm just wondering how you're feeling actually about this. Is, is this a real example of difficulty within the Labour Party? Um, I don't think it is. And my, my eternal regret, because I know many of these people, is that they didn't pick up the phone and have the conversation with us. You know, I've seen the, the motion they proposed. Um, I didn't have much difficulty with it, but that conversation didn't happen. Um, there was a reaction, I think, from the UK party because they were nervous about people adopting positions that might not chime with the circumstances. And as we've seen, this is such a fast moving issue. I think if people said, you know, at the start of this, um, that they believed in X, I think they would have changed their mind by now because it is so diverse and so fast moving. So 
we are very comfortable with where we are. We, we absolutely condemn what Hamas did in Israel. You know, there is no justification for killing innocent civilians. We equally are clear that there needs to be that humanitarian corridor opened up, both in terms of getting food, water, medical supplies, all of that in to Gaza. And I am equally clear that if we can, whilst recognizing Israel's right to defend itself and to recover the hostages, um, if we can avoid further loss of life, particularly innocent civilians, men, women and children in Gaza, then that is absolutely what we should be doing. And I hope people redouble their diplomatic efforts. So where Labour is, 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 is absolutely consistent. And I'm genuinely sorry that those colleagues felt they needed to resign from their positions. I am delighted they remain le- members of the Labour Party. And you, know, you can rest assured that we continue to discuss these issues um, in Scotland and take a view. And on a personal level, Um, I have somebody I know in my own constituency who is an oncology nurse at the Vale of Leven Hospital. He spends time, his own time, out in Palestine working in hospitals in Gaza, training up and working with oncology nurses and indeed consultants there. And one of the consultants actually lost their life as a consequence of the war. Now, you know, that brings it home to you that actually nothing is gained by people continuing to, you know, be violent towards each other. But I understand the complexity and the difficulty of the circumstances. Mm. Uh, you mentioned the motion that they were going to uh, that they had submitted, and I should just mention that that was calling on Anna Sarwar to press for a ceasefire and the release of Israeli hostages that were held by Hamas, as well as as you've mentioned, the establishment of a humanitarian corridor to allow aid in. And they were told that any discussion of the issue was to be considered out of order and quote should not be debated at party meetings. Did you worry when you when you heard this, Jackie, that there was something of an overcorrection within the Labour Party based on the difficulties, the well-advertised difficulties it faced under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership in contending with these issues, these opinions and these discussions within the party? Did it feel like that, an overcorrection? I think people were, were genuinely nervous because the situation was evolving so quickly in real time that people then didn't associate themselves with comments or statements or other people making statements that, that then transpired to be wrong. But the reality is that instruction um, came. It, it wasn't how we were feeling about it. And actually, had they picked up the phone to me, we would have been able to resolve matters. I'm glad that they remain within the Labour Party, as I said before. Um, But these things are really difficult to navigate because so much is happening so quickly. Um, I think think an overcorrection from the Corbyn era was inevitable. And to a degree, I think it was necessary. I mean, I have to remember how concerned the Jewish community was about Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn. And actually, if you look at what Keir Starmer has done to that party, in four years, not a lot of time, it is actually pretty remarkable what he has done in the space of four years, internally and in terms of the way that Jewish people and the Jewish diaspora sees Labour and is prepared to engage with Labour. Um, I, I I think that overcorrection will, um, and I think the whole debate is moving on as it should to 
Israel's response because it's actually very important for the future of Israel um, for and for the Middle East and for the world because, uh, you know, Ukraine, Taiwan, there's an awful lot coming together here, which is potentially very concerning. It's very important that Israel get this right. Uh, and the Israeli government is a real concern in terms of whether or not it will get that right. It is not a good government. Uh, you know, we should be very clear that we are allies with Israel, but this is not a good Israeli government. All of that being said, can I just bring Jackie back to the 7th of October? Because um, that acute incident was an incident of um, unusual and almost unprecedented terror that I don't think hardly, you know, any of us have really seen before. You know, we've experienced IRA terrorism, Al-Qaeda. But what happened on the 7th of October was something uh, completely different from any of that. You know, if you'd applied it per head of population, for example, to the 7-7 bombings in London, that would have been 10,000 people in London not 52. So this was, and and we won't go through the viciousness of the particular things that happened, but we've all read about them, and um, it was something completely out of the ordinary. Now, the response to that uh, around the world um, was a response to that unique event, and we saw uh, the UK government, we saw Sadiq Khan at City Hall, we saw uh, centre-left governments in France, Germany, and the US all flying the Israeli flag. And that, the flying of that flag was not um, denying Palestinian statehood. The flying of that flag was not supporting Bibi Netanyahu or the Israeli government. It was supporting the people of Israel at, at a time of unique horror. Um, and we didn't do it. Now, I suppose my question for Jackie, in, in, if you had been in government... And there are four flagpoles. I was at Butte House. Uh, I was at St Andrew's House the next week. There are four flagpoles at St Andrew's House. Two flew the saltire. One flew the Ukraine flag, Ukraine flag, and one was empty. And so my question to Jackie is: Would you, in government, have flown the Israeli flag that day for those few days when we were dealing with that unique event? Um, to be honest, I I am not a great one for flags. I have to be be totally honest with you, but I probably would have done because I think our reaction to the awful, awful tragedy that was unfolding um, had to be in the moment. Now, I would have rather issued a statement condemning Hamas, um, you know, setting out our position very clearly. But there were two things going on. One, the parliament has a protocol about what flags they fly at a particular time. And I'm not going to second guess what colleagues on the corporate body decided to do. But the question was specifically about government. And I think I would have probably flown the flag of Israel because of the extent and enormity of the horror that was unfolding on our our television screens. That's really interesting. It's, it's been such a sort of intriguing time to try to, as you say, to try to keep up with how politicians are are responding. Do you feel like there is unity in the Labour Party um, on this? Is it something that you engage with Keir Starmer on when it's something of this significance? How does that work in terms of trying to coalesce around what is the right way forward? I mean, there is lots of engagement between Scotland and the UK party and asses down in London as we speak um, in, in, you know, in discussions about this, in discussions about our position. Um, we are reflecting you know, very diverse views, but actually everybody is completely united in condemning Hamas, 
in calling for that humanitarian corridor to be opened up and asking Israel not to go in and kill innocent civilians. Um, and I think, as, as was referenced by Andy, this is not just about Israel-Palestine. This is about the whole of the Middle East. And so we need to uh, approach this with considerable caution. And, of course, my heart goes out to the First Minister. He and I will joust often um, about you know, his record in health or his record in government. Um, but on this issue, the entire parliament is united because he is going through a very personal difficulty with his in-laws stranded out in Gaza. And I think we all want their safe return. Yeah. Uh, Jackie, thank you for engaging with that. I realise it is a difficult issue, but we appreciate your insight and and exactly what you've shared with us. Um, so thank you. Uh, we want to go on and just talk about some other uh, issues affecting Scotland and politics in Scotland as well. Um, Hamza Yusuf, uh, in his speech at SNP conference, announced £100 million a year for the next uh, three years to try to cut NHS waiting lists. Um which obviously he's confident that that's going to work. I'm actually just going to bring Andy in on this because I know, Andy, uh, that you know, you've said in the past that throwing more money at the NHS is not the answer and we might as well give the money to you. Well, I think we can all rule out that happening, but, uh, <laughs> but, but we take your point. Um, what did you... <laughs> I don't need all 300 million. I would just take a small fraction of it. That would be fine. Um, but, I mean, what, what do you want to... What's your consideration on this, Andy, in terms of... You know, in terms of the money that Yusuf is pledging, is, isn't it worth trying? If, it, if, it, if there's a chance it's going to work and bring waiting lists down and improve service from the National Health Service, then why not? Because uh, it's not going to work. It never does. Um, the, uh, the problem with the NHS of capacity, the reason waiting lists are high is because we don't have enough doctors or nurses and we don't have enough MRI scanners, we don't have enough CT scanners, we don't have enough stuff. Um, if you compare us to other OECD countries, we spend a pretty similar amount of money that they do but they all have significantly more doctors and nurses per head and significantly more kit per head than we do. Even if you look over the pond in Ireland, they train and have double the number per head of doctors and nurses that we do. So our problem is one of capacity, and you can't solve that over three years with £100 million a year. When politicians say they're going to put direct money into cutting waiting lists, what that means is that they are going to ask the existing doctors and nursing staff to do more hours to cut waiting lists. And the difficulty is that the bonds of trust between NHS staff and the NHS and the, the very significant amount of goodwill that existed, especially amongst doctors and the NHS, are broken. Um, and it is very difficult to ask these people to do more, even for potentially being paid a bit more, for potentially a bit of overtime, it's very difficult to ask them to work harder to get these lists down. Um, this money is almost certain to be wasted. This money is almost certain not to cut lists. This is something that has to be tackled in a much longer term, much more systemic way because there is system failure in the NHS and you can't plaster over it. I wondered when sticking plasters would come into this because that is exactly what I think um, the SNP have announced, again, in reaction to um, one of our main campaign, campaign themes during Rutherglen and Hamilton West because it, we have 800,000 people in Scotland on a waiting list. That's one in seven. And the reality is, 
is going up. It's not going down, despite announcements by um, the former health minister, Hamza Youssef, the current health minister, about managing those waiting lists down. There are still something like 2,000 people waiting more than three years. Now, that is unthinkable. It's genuinely unthinkable. Um, but, But Andy's right. The solution is not an immediate one. We actually need to get workforce planning right, something that the government has failed to do. In fact, I recall it was Nicola Sturgeon that cut the number of nurses and midwives um, training places when we said at the time, you will pay for this in the long run. And we're now sitting with 7,000 vacancies across the NHS, 5,000 of which are nurses. You know, So we're clearly not training enough people. But equally, we can't say, wait five years till we train some more people up. Um, we need to address some of this just now. Um, so for, for, for me, it is about equipment. Andy's right. We, we have equipment that's out of date. We can speed processes up in terms of diagnostics, and that would take care of some of the waiting list. But in terms of treatment, what we could do in the short term, and this was announced by my colleague Wes Streeting at, at our conference in Liverpool, is actually using the NHS at the weekends. Now, you know, the staff are really tired, so I recognise this needs to be done with their agreement. But the NHS has capacity at the weekends to do operations um, if the staffing is there. And the BMA down south have welcomed this. Um, It is only a stopgap measure. But what we need to do is get into the weeds of workforce planning much more effectively than we've ever done to date. Um, And I see these people at my surgeries. And some of them are making heartbreaking choices. Families are kind of clubbing um, their savings together to put their mother with a bad knee or hip through an operation. And the fact that we now do more knees and hips in the private sector than we do by the NHS should be a concern for us all. Um, So, yeah, we need to do something about it, but you will only do something in the short term. Can I just say a word on the money? Um, 100 million sounds like a lot of money, but they haven't identified where it's going to come from yet. And it's not going to start till at least April once the new budget kicks in. They don't know where the money is coming from for years two and three after that. Um, So it it is kind of very much sticking plaster. And I think it was just so that Hamza could have an announcement at SNP conference and less about actually tackling the problem of long waits. Yeah, if I may, Callum, just um, uh, jump in very briefly. Um, You know, obviously I was in government for seven years and I recognise the huge challenge that the health portfolio is. And, and, and I think we all accept that the functions and the breadth of the NHS and what it's expected to carry out increases year by year. And, and there's no sign of that abating. And one of the most interesting things, uh, Jackie, when we had on this podcast was Jean Freeman. Uh, and she articulated, and, and I'm paraphrasing here, but you know, a, a route forward that had a fundamental reform of how we provide um, health at the point, uh, free at the point of use, and talking a lot about the role of health boards. And I won't go into too much about her proposals, but we got to this position where, you know, perhaps it is time to try and take some of the uh, micropolitics out of this, you know, throwing 100 million here um, uh, and there, and trying to think about a long term vision for our NHS. And I suppose my question to you is if we could establish whether it is a commission or an independent body or cross party, somebody like Malcolm Chisholm, you know, as a Labour grandee, somebody like Gene Freeman from the SNP, um, and some um, experts and clinicians 
to fundamentally look at how we reform the NHS. Would you support that if the SNP was to take that forward now or in the coming year or two? Um, or is it something the Labour Party would look at as well? Because I, I always fear that we have the same conversation about health. It, it doesn't matter. Whoever is in opposition, and I'm, I put my hands up here when the SNP was in opposition, oh, more money, more money, frontline, frontline. What does it actually mean? Where does it actually go? And we ended up going around in circles in this virtual kind of unhelpful cycle. And I, and I just wonder, could we... Would, is that something you would look at at the Labour Party and supporting now or indeed when you're in government if that happens? I, I will always talk to anybody, whether it's from a political party or more importantly, from the NHS itself, to try and get us to a better place. So, you know, in principle, absolutely. But the reality is we're doing the work now. So I think there needs to be a reset of the NHS. Everybody absolutely values that it's free at the point of use. We need to keep it that way. But equally, we need to recognise that it's not working. Everybody just appearing at secondary care at the door of the hospital, you know, when they don't need to be and they should be cared for much closer to home. And over the years, there hasn't been the investment required in primary care. You know, we see the number of GPs actually reducing despite the government having a target to increase it. Um, we see the number of patients they're dealing with increasing and something's got to give. And unless we actually properly support primary care and help people to live healthier lives in their own community, we're just not going to fix the back end, which is secondary care, because we're going to leave people to become more acutely unwell and end up having more intervention than is actually required. So we need to rebalance the system. And that does mean switching money from, from around from where it is to actually invest in primary care and recognise the value of social care alongside that. So, yes, happy to have conversations with everybody, but, but I actually want to listen to people who are in our communities, in social care, in primary care, um, about what they offer because they can offer so much more, but they frankly are under-resourced and unable to do it. I, I, just, just to sort of close off this point, I, the, most, the most interesting person in the Labour Party, present company accepted, of course. <laughs> good save. McKeever, yeah. good save. Is, uh, good recovery. Thank you, thank you very much. I'm quite pleased with myself for that one, I'll be honest. <laughs> uh, is, um, is Wes Streeting. He is saying things about the NHS that a Tory politician could never say. Uh, and he is saying more in his area than any other member of the Shadow Cabinet is saying in theirs. And I find it very, very interesting. He's, he, is, he is making it quite clear that with an uh, ageing pop population of uh, uh, relatively disproportionately older people and a falling, proportionately falling working age population, something has to give. Uh, and this needs a pretty major service redesign because this is square peg and round hole stuff. And he's being very, very, he's not holding anything back at all. And I suppose my question for Jackie is that th there's been enough divergence over the last couple of decades that um, the English NHS and the Scottish NHS are sufficiently different. Do you think that a, a, a complete streeting type message would work here, or do you think you need to sanitise it a little bit for the Scottish 
health audience to cope with? I probably wouldn't describe it as sanitizing it, um, but but I will pass on your your kind regards to Wes that you think he's the most interesting politician. Um, whether that gets in promotion or not, who knows? You know, um, damned by faint praise by Andy, but I shall certainly pass pass your regards on. I think the issue here is 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 slightly different. We have substantial challenges, you know, in parts of my constituency, in parts of Scotland, where the level of deprivation is such that people's life chances are reducing. You know, their life chances are set before they reach the age of two or three, and they are reducing. And I am absolutely embarrassed that, you know, mortality in Scotland for the first time in, I think, the last three years is going the wrong way is going the wrong way. And that's not just down to the SNP government, that's down to the UK government as well. Austerity is killing people, um, and we need to be clear about that. But what I do think is important is that we get back to trying to prevent ill health in the first place. We have just lost the plot on that. We've really done nothing, I think, that, that has been of huge significance in local communities. We've done population-wide measures, but actually getting down into your local community um, with public health messages, with supporting people to do things differently needs to be where we go. And if we can prevent ill health occurring, then you know the NHS is more likely to be able to cope. But the one thing I'm very clear about is we need to focus the NHS on what the priorities are because we can't have it as jam spread too thin. It just doesn't work that way. We don't have the staff. We need to do more to, one, train more staff, but actually retain the staff we've got, and we're simply not doing enough of that. Yeah. If I, if I may just make a personal observation here, and because I've probably spent more time in the last five months in, in hospitals than, than I would have ever wanted to, and, and for good reason, birth of my son, and, 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 and then they had to have an operation in, in Glasgow, at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital, which was, and I must put on record that the treatment we received at both hospitals was fantastic. And I, and I think when people get seen, Jackie, their experience is usually a positive one. The question about when they get seen is, is perhaps what we're on this discussion. But I, I, I don't want to break confidences, but to a man and woman that I spoke to in both hospitals, you know, they were quite open and, and a couple of them recognised my name and were chatting to me actually through this podcast about the sheer pressure that they are under. And it was actually quite um, emotional to hear and, 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 and distressing in terms of some of the things that they have to experience. Hugely dedicated professionals. And suppose I just want to go back to that point. It's, there is a political prize on here and offer. And I don't want to sound callous about that. But I think in order to achieve that political prize, you almost have to take the politics out of it. And I really would love to see a, a strong, bold ambition for our NHS that to try and protect it from getting it into the yaboo and knockabout politics had that independent approval that everyone could try and get behind. I'm all for politics. We all know that. I've been involved in the cut and thrust of it. But I, I, I really fear about our ability to provide our top care health service if this continues as it is. Let, let me say and agree with you absolutely. The, the NHS would be nothing without the staff that work in it. You know, my neighbour works in the NHS. I hear firsthand just some of the pressure and they keep going. 
They keep going and they do enormously well with limited resources to care for us. So, so I absolutely concur with, with, with your view. Um, and any time I myself have had um, the occasion to, to use the NHS, it's been superb. Um, coming back to your point, though, so I have experience of health boards across the country who do what the government tell them to do who don't kind of have debate, discussion, who don't reflect what clinicians are telling them. And so for me, I think part of the structure of the NHS as it exists is not the right one. And that's not just about politics. That's about command and control structures um, that are not about letting clinicians have their view, local communities have their view, and health boards are stopping that. They're a barrier, they're an obstacle to the kind of approach I think you and I want to see. So I have no issue with taking the big politics with a P out of the NHS, but we do need to get the structures right. Who are these bodies responsible to? And I've got to, again, be honest with you, I have not found anybody other than somebody who works for a health board that says to me, we need to retain the health boards. Um, they care about where their hospital is. They care about where their medical centre is. They care about the services they receive. Um, and frankly, for a population uh, of our size in Scotland, we have far too many of these organisations. What I would want to do is take the skills that these people have and push it downwards into primary care so that we do much better at providing care locally, at listening to communities, and we stop the pressure that is happening in the acute sector and we actually rebalance the system. So I'm, I genuinely have no opposition to doing things cross-party, but I actually also want to make sure we hear that clinician's voice and that community voice in the mix as well. Jackie, it's been so fascinating speaking to you and we're very grateful for your time. I mentioned at the start that you're, you're actually Dame Jackie Bailey at this point. I think, have you got, you've got a date, haven't you, for the official, the official, I don't know what you call it, the official honour to be bestowed? Is that the right language? Uh, I'm not going to comment on the language, but yes, I do have a date. It's the 17th of January in Holyrood, and I am very much looking forward to it. I think this is the first honoured guest, is it not? Nobody else on the podcast has had a title, until you get your knighthood, Callum, which can't be that far away. Nobody else has had a title on the podcast. Safe to say, Andy, you and I will not be getting knighted anytime no, soon. No, 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 no. For no. services to podcasting. But to be honest, right, it, to be honest, it is very much, it's not for me alone. Um, politics is a team sport, so this is for all my constituents too. Oh, that's lovely. Do you know, no fewer than two people, Jackie, have suggested to me that I ask you if you'll be wearing a hat for the occasion. <laughs> that is an astama. It wasn't us two, by the way. It wasn't us. will pay for giving you that information, but I have been told that it is a requirement to wear a hat, so I might go out and buy one. Because there's been, there's been difficulties in the past, as they're not with getting hold of a hat for official occasions. <laughs> don't go there. Just don't go there. Uh, Anna says he listens every week, so I wonder how he'll respond to that as well. Um, Jackie Bailey, thank you very much indeed. Thanks for your time. <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, Jeff and Andy, thank you as well. Soon to be Sir Jeff and Sir Andy, I'm certain of that. <laughs> Um, if, I mean, I don't know if we can we volunteer you. Can we nominate you? If we can, Why not? give it a try. I'd be the second most famous Sir Andy from Scotland. <laughs> <laughs>
Sir Jeff just doesn't work on any level. Fair. So, uh, You're a lot I, grumpier on that day. No. Okay. Not keen. Uh, Jeff Aberdeen, Andy McKeever, and more importantly, Jackie Bailey, Dame Jackie Bailey. Thank you all very much indeed. Uh, this is Hollywood Sources. Thank you for listening. Thank you for following. Make sure you sign up to the email mailing list as well on the website, hollywoodsources.com, and we will talk to you next week. <laughs>